Meanwhile, here we are in the midst of a red letter study. And we're at the point where, um, when I did this study 10 years ago, we were at the point where we moved into the Sermon on the Mount. And in terms of a red letter study, the Sermon on the Mount is the mother load of red letters. If you, if you ever look at your Bible that has red letters in it, it's going to be three solid chapters of red ink. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Just all the words of Jesus right there. And since we did this, we did the Sermon on the Mount actually about a year and a half ago. Um, just the Sermon on the Mount itself. And so uh, we did that uh, for 29 weeks. just about seven months. So we really dug into it. I don't want to do that again to that level of detail uh, during this larger look at Jesus uh, writing. But we can't leave it out either in the context of what we're doing. But what I do want to do is to try to approach the, the sermon more thematically. Try to hit the main themes and especially to look at those themes and to look at the material in these three chapters from the point of view of Jesus' main objective. What is the main thing he's trying to teach us, show us, where, what is the main way that he's trying to engage us into this way, this process, this kingdom that he talks about, and for what purpose? If we can keep that in mind and then relate everything that we're going to be studying in the sermon to that, I think that might be a real good, somewhat changed perspective in terms of looking at the material in the Sermon on the Mount, because this is quintessential Jesus. This is quintessentially what he's doing in terms of addressing that main objective. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that um, this main view of Jesus, this main way of trying to get us to follow along the direction he's going is all based in shocking us out of our minds. Jesus is like a taser, if you want to think of him that way. He's shocking us out of our minds, trying to shock us out of our mindset, trying to shock us out of our worldview, out of all of the beliefs, either consciously or unconsciously, that we hold, that we have accrued, that we have learned and absorbed and, and accepted and become convinced of over how many years we've been living on the planet. He's trying to shock us out of those, to reconsider those, to take a look at those again, to put them all on the table, to drop our nets at the shore and see things for the very first time with that beginner's mind. That's why the child is always the emblem of kingdom for him, to look at things afresh, look at things anew, as if you knew nothing, because the truth of the matter is we don't know anything. We do know nothing. And so to get back in line with our true selves and experience our moments, our relationships, and our God from that perspective is everything that he's trying to do. When Jesus did this himself, and that's what his wilderness experience is all about, him shocking himself, him going into this kind of place, he learned a truth. And that truth was so mind-bending, and yet at the same time so fragile, so ephemeral, that it becomes obliterated in the light of day. Back in the daylight, when we're dealing with all of our details, when our minds are on overdrive, trying to get from point A to point B and do the things that we do, that central truth just gets blown away, gets displaced. 
But Jesus is trying to bring it back. He's trying to get us to be able to balance ourselves. We still need to go through our days. They're not going to be any less chaotic because we're trying to address our spiritual formation here. How can we balance the two? How can we get to a place where both the reality of life as it is presented physically and this core truth of the deeper reality become present to us at the same time? And what is this truth that Jesus found? Jesus knew the truth of his identity. For me, that's what it all boils down to. Boils down to identity. This deepest self that we can't know unless we go through this process, this way of Jesus, which is contemplative practice as well. And this deepest self, this identity, this true identity that Jesus found, can only be found in God's, in the Father's presence. When Jesus talked about his own identity, he always said, I and the Father are one. Jesus didn't recognize any separate identity of his own. His identity was in the Father. I and the Father are one. I don't do anything on my own initiative. I only do what the Father does through me. These little jewels, these little cues and clues in the text of the Gospels are so important, and yes, we blow, yet we blow right over them. We don't stop and consider what they're really showing us, the importance of what they're showing us. This deepest self can only be found, only understood in the Father's presence, in God's presence, and only found in the complete oneness, the unity of that presence. And in the process of that presence, we're not sitting here and thinking about it philosophically. When we are living the process of being in that presence, in that connection, in that unity, this is where the truth will come clear to us. And that presence of God is made of oneness, which is love. Love is oneness. Love is identification with the beloved. It is that connection where we don't see the end of ourselves and the beginning of other. Everything becomes one thing. That's what this presence is. It is that love. And that love is absolute in God. We've talked about this a million times, but we need to talk about it a million more because in the light of day, it gets obliterated because the light of day presents all the division, all the separateness, all the loneliness, all the competition, all the performance. Everything that life presents to us is always blowing away this fragile, ephemeral truth that God's love is absolute, that it has no degree, that it can't be measured because it is infinite. And if it can't be measured, then it can't really be conceived of in our minds. There's no way to do that if it can't be measured. And as soon as you shine a light on this truth, as soon as you look at it, as soon as you think about it, it's not it anymore. You've changed it. Any of you familiar with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in quantum physics? Oh, come on. Really? No? Oh, all right. Okay. So, so he was one of those brainy German 
you know, crazy scientist back in the 20s. And he came up with this as they were looking at subatomic particles, you know, the, the protons and the neutrons. What he found is in the experiments is that you couldn't know, you could not know both the position and the velocity of any one particle at the same time. And in the fact, the more you were able to nail down the position, the less you knew about the velocity. And the more you nailed down the velocity, the less you knew about the position. And by the way, just looking at a particle changed its properties. Just the observation of the interaction of these subatomic particles changed their properties. I think this is at the core of our lives. God engineered it into the core of physics. Why wouldn't it also be at the core of our lives. The more we look at something, the more we think about it. And if we name it, which in ancient Hebrew idiom meant to show dominion over it, like a, a parent gets to name its child, that shows dominion over it. Adam got to name the, all the animals in the garden, showing dominion over them. As soon as we name it, we imagine that we have dominion over it. We imagine we have some sort of control because we've named it. We put edges around it that we can hold on to. We've got handles now in our minds. We've got this structure. The illusion of control kicks in at that point. But as soon as you look at it, it is not it anymore. And Jesus knows that we humans think about everything constantly. But if you're thinking about God's love, if you're thinking about your identity, your true identity, you're already missing it. It's like lightning. If you see it, it's already missed you don't have to worry about it anymore. You won't see the bolt that gets you, right? So if you're thinking about it, if you're seeing it, you've already missed it. And if you name it, if you think you understand it, if you have this illusion of control, then you've lost it completely. You're not even in the building, in the ballpark anymore. Because Jesus tells us, you know, God and God's spirit is like the wind. He uses that in John 3 that analogy. The wind, you don't see it. You can hear it. You can see the effect of it. But you can't see it. And you can't know anything about it. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going to. It's powerful. It's invisible. And it's unknowable, the wind. But you can see its effects. That's what we're going after. That's why we call this place the effect. That's something that we can actually see, the effects of God's love. We can't know it. We can experience it, but only in real time, only as it's reeling out, only as the music is playing. Because after we stop and think about it again, it's changed. It's become something else. Jesus understands this. He says, your God is like the wind. If you're going to be born again in spirit so that you can start to see these kinds of truths, then you're going to learn to live with the mysteries of life. You're going to learn to live with the uncertainties of life. It's a whole different way of living and experiencing, a whole different attitude toward life. How do you know that you're in love? How do you know that you're in love? Can you explain that to somebody? How you know you're in love? I mean, you can talk about the effects of it. You can talk about how your heart rate, you know, shoots up. You can talk about flutters. You can talk about, you know, that it makes you go to the flower shop three times a day to buy flowers. You can talk about the effects of it. But how do you really explain that you're in love? How do you define it? And can you control it? Oh, my gosh. 
try to control being in love, right? Especially when you know you're in love with the wrong person, but you just can't help it. There's all that. But you can see the effects. There was a, a movie called Contact, which is actually about extraterrestrial life, but I'm not going there. There was just a great scene between um, the main scientist, uh, female scientist, <laughs> Jodie Foster, um, who, uh, who discovered the signal and was running this down, and the, the main male character who was a spiritual leader, uh, you know, kind of non-denominational spiritual leader. And they have this, this uh, great dialogue between the two of them where she is saying, I am not going to believe, because he's been talking about, you know, God being behind all of this. And she says, I'm not going to believe it. I will only believe what I can prove empirically. And so he waits a beat and says, do you love your father? And there's a whole backstory to that about her father. Do you love your father? She says, yes. He says, prove it. And she has no response to that. How do we? How do we prove love? We can say, well, I do all these great things. You could do all those great things for a lot of other reasons. We can't define or explain these things. We know it when we're in it. You know when you're in love. But you can't explain it. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. You will know when you're in God's presence. You will see the effects over time. But as soon as you think about it, as soon as you try to quantify it, as soon as you put handles on it, it changes it. And Jesus knows that the only way for us to fall in love, the only way for us to experience the love of God is to stop thinking. Stop thinking about it learn to stop thinking altogether for periods of a time and to fall out of control. If you want to fall in love, you're going to need to fall out of control. Why does love, falling in love feel so good in the first place? Because you're fallen out of control. It's control that keeps us anxious. It's the illusion of control that keeps us stressed and constantly thinking and preparing for contingencies. To fall out of that and know that you're free-falling and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it is the greatest feeling in the world, and it's also the most terrifying at the same time. This is the human condition. This is the paradox. This is the conundrum. And Jesus is addressing all of this in his typical way, you know, as a poet, Right, So we're not going to get the specifics that our mind craves, but it's all there. We have to stop thinking. We have to learn to admit that we never were in control in the first place. And here's the kicker, that we don't actually exist independently. We don't exist apart from anything and everything else. Our only existence, our only identity is in connection, in unity with everything else that exists. And until we understand that, we're always going to be banging at the door with our heads, right? We don't really exist. We have no identity apart from. That's why Jesus brilliantly says, I and the Father are one. That is my expression of identity. I can't tell you what I am apart from the Father because I don't exist apart from the Father. When we're saying we're dependent, man, we mean it in the most existential way possible. All our minds do our egoic minds, as soon as they kick in at, what, age six or seven with, with our egoic identity, all our minds do is create a sense of independence, a sense of separation, 
a sense of a separate identity that is apart from everyone else. And then working to allow us to be able to move through all those others and get what we need alone for ourselves. That's what our minds do. It's an absolutely necessary adaptation for survival. We've got to have it. But if we can't transcend it and balance at the same time with this deeper reality, then we'll never get where Jesus is going because the separation that our minds create for us is an illusion. We don't really exist apart. And so the only way to the Father, the only way to this truth of oneness is to be shocked out of our minds. We've got to get out of our minds. Think of the things that Jesus says to us. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. You need to pick up your cross daily and follow me. You've got to hate your father and mother and your children and even your own life if you want to follow me. He says to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You don't think that those were shocking in a visceral way to the first people that he said them to? Of course they were. Those were real tasers right to the heart. To hear those kinds of words, hate your father and mother, in a shame and honor culture, in, in, a, in, a, in a collective communal culture where family was tantamount to survival, and honoring your father and mother was one of the Decalogue, one of the commandments, punishable by death. But what Jesus is talking about here, to hate your fathers and mother is to prefer less, to realize that there is something that even transcends the familial relationship. There is a deeper identity still. There is always a deeper identity still. And if we're thinking about it, that's not it. It's something that can only be experienced in real time. These are all the shockers that Jesus gave us, and they're all throughout the, the New Testament, not only in what he says, but in what he does. We've been covering these, these healing stories, where Jesus is breaking the boxes, the social boxes, the, the ritual boxes, the, the legal boxes, and, and the relational boxes, all of them, in order to prove this point, to show that there is a oneness and connection that trumps everything. But they don't shock us anymore. And that's the problem. We have gotten so familiar, we have gotten so remote from the culture from which they were birthed that we don't understand how fundamentally shocking these sayings are of Jesus. And so last week, I was trying to point out how Jesus is trying to break us out of our boxes. These boxes that we have created, or society, or religion have created for us, our families created for us when we were children, and now we are living in the boxes, and we don't even really know that we're living in the boxes. Some of them are conscious, but a lot of them are unconscious. And so getting outside the box, these healing stories, whether he was touching the leper before he healed him and, and forgiving the paralytic before he healed him, or calling Levi before Levi made any amends or made any changes and repentance to his evil ways as a tax collector are challenging all these cherished boxes that hold us and limit us and keep us thinking and thinking that we can control the process of connecting with our God. Violating the beliefs and the codes and the laws of all of this to open us up to a brand new reality, one that we cannot even really conceive of. And as soon as we put it into our minds, it sounds so absurd that we want to dismiss it. But when we experience it, when we fall in love, we know that it's true. But if we're going to fall in love, we've got to fall out of control, right? 
And it's got to be a violent jolt that does this to us. can't just be a pat on the shoulder, right? It's got to be a really painful loss, a shocking reality that's strong enough to shatter the glass, shatter the walls of these boxes that we're in. And Jesus' followers are always getting shocked, always. Just reread the Gospels and see how often they are just utterly spun, confused, bewildered, angry. Some are leaving Jesus because they can't take what he's saying anymore, right? Followers are getting stunned and confused and hurt, and Jesus' enemies are just getting angrier and angrier as he continues to push in these directions. The conscious boxes that we follow, that we consider virtuous, that we consider they're, they're keeping us in line and in, in approval for the Father because we're still living on our, on our performance, are powerful drives. But the unconscious ones are even more powerful because we don't even know that they exist. We don't know why we keep saying and thinking and doing the things that we do. We don't understand until we finally get through therapy or contemplative practice itself. The insight, those old memories, those things we've forgotten that we've forgotten that are still directing us. And until we've experienced this jolt, until we've experienced this loss, a loss that's powerful enough to at least momentarily shatter the box, momentarily show us another there out there, then we don't know what we don't know. Trang Su, 300 years before Jesus, said, you cannot speak of ocean to a well frog, the creature of a narrower sphere. And you cannot speak of ice to a summer insect, the creature of a single season. He's telling us these things in line with what Jesus is telling us. We don't know what we don't know until we finally get a peek over the edge of our box. And we can't conceive of anything inside our boxes that stands without. You can't do it any more than the frog in the well can conceive of an expanse like ocean. Now, our problem is, part of our problem is, as Westerners, as we read our sacred scriptures, is that Jesus is a poet. He's a poet. We don't think of him as a poet. It doesn't sound like poetry to our ears. But even if Jesus isn't speaking in actual, literal Hebrew poetry, and sometimes he is, he's using all the tools of a poet. He's got the heart of a poet. He's speaking in metaphor and figures of speech. He's using story to illustrate rather than trying to give us some kind of actual propounded information. You know, He doesn't lay things out, certainly the way Paul does. He doesn't operate like a philosopher. He doesn't lay out truths that way. He tells stories. His job is to try to evoke a response, to invite us to engage in a way of living that will change things. Because he knows the more we engage thought, the further and further away we're getting from this truth that makes all the difference. So he speaks and teaches like a poet. And it's difficult for thinkers. It's difficult especially for us as modern Westerners because that's all we do is think and reduce things, not only to thought, but now to numbers. The digital age, everything is a number. Once you take something and you can reduce it to numbers, you can do anything you want with it. Look at what AI is doing, right? As soon as images, as soon as words, as soon as everything can be reduced to numbers, we can print it on a printer, a digital printer. Wow. And we think we've got control. 
And that's the illusion. That's the danger from a spiritual perspective. So what Jesus is doing is deliberately confounding our thinking. We've talked about this. He never answers a question a question with an answer. He always answers a question with another question or a story. He takes you on a journey. He's trying to break you right at the point of your thinking and your reasoning because that's the problem. It is the thinking and the reasoning, not the lack of an answer to a question. And he uses indirect methods with metaphor and figures of speak, speech. Poets speak, right? This is how he speaks to us. So he doesn't teach like a philosopher. And for all we know, he didn't write anything down at all. That wasn't his purpose. Isn't that amazing? Jesus never wrote anything down. We knew he could write. He could read and write. You know? But the only image of him writing anything down is when he's scribbling in the dirt you know, when he's waiting for everyone to leave after he says, well, whoever you, whoever's without sin, sin, cast the first stone. And he doodles in the dirt. That's the only thing we've got. There is no evidence that Jesus wrote anything down. Everything was written about him. And it was decades later. All he did was oral tradition. There's a reason for that. Because as soon as you write it down, you've got something that now becomes a graven image. The book can become your next idol if you're not careful. Are those words leading you into this deeper experience? Or have you externalized them and you're just thinking about them and they no longer have any power? Jesus is trying to elicit experiences that will reinforce a benevolent mental breakdown. Okay? That's what we're after. A benevolent mental breakdown. Now, what does that look like? Um, I mentioned... uh, the well frog. That comes from a, a piece called Autumn Floods, or Neither Great Nor Small, written by Chuang Tzu, who was a, a student of Lao Tzu, who was the founder in Chinese tradition of, of Taoism. And um, I want to read a portion of that this morning all together and see if we can start to understand where Jesus is coming from. Uh, Chuang Tzu comes from, say, the 4th to the 3rd century, somewhere around there, B.C., so he's three or four hundred years before Jesus. A student of Lao Tzu, as I said, who was the sixth to the fifth century. So Chang Tzu comes a couple centuries after his teacher, who was a founder. And what is Taoism? Why would I even bring that up in a Christian setting? Well, first of all, uh, for my money, Taoism and Christianity, as taught by Jesus, are about the closest that we see of two different traditions. They are so similar. In fact, Tao itself, which is spelled T-A-O, but pronounced Tao, means the way. And it means the way in much exactly the same way that Jesus means the way when he uses it. It's uh, that same understanding of a living experience of everyday being. It can mean a method. It can mean a process. It can mean a principle. But Tao actually points to the natural order or the spiritual balance of everything that is. What is that natural order? What is that balance? This underlying reality, this harmony that is present in life but we don't normally see, and that sense of an underlying reality, of an underlying reason, is is exactly what logos means that is used in John 1. That also is an underlying reality. That idea from the Greek tradition is the same as here, as the Tao or as the way, the urha in Aramaic of Jesus. 
And so this natural order, the idea here is to live in the flow of the natural order, not to be violating it, not to be working at cross purposes. But in order to discern what that natural flow is, ah, well, there's the rub, right? How do we do that? (laughs) But once you're on this way, once you're on the Tao, many things start to become clearer about ourselves, about relationships, about the connection with everyone and everything. And so in the autumn floods, in this piece, what Chuang Tzu is describing is the jolt, that violent loss of a box, of a belief, of an illusion that changes everything. To have that shattered and to have the pain of that shattering, to start to see yourself in a completely different light is what autumn floods is all about. And then ensues a philosophical conversation between the spirit of the river and the spirit of the ocean. And it's the kind of conversation that Jesus never gives us because he doesn't speak dialectically like this. He doesn't speak philosophically like this. But I think this can start to give us insight into what Jesus is presenting poetically and as a model in his life. This is what we're trying to do. Because everything that we're going to be reading in Autumn Floods is played out in all of Jesus' teaching and all of his actions as he lives in the way. So to get a better handle on Jesus, let's just read a... a, just an edit from Autumn Floods. And I printed everything that I'm going to read is in your insert. So if you can pull that up, it's, it's going to continue on the back side. But at least it might be easier for you to follow along. So it was the time of the Autumn Floods. Every stream poured into the river, which swelled in its turbid course. The banks receded so far from one another that it was impossible to tell a cow from a horse on the opposite bank. Then the spirit of the river laughed for joy that all the beauty of the earth was gathered to himself. Down with the stream he journeyed east until he reached the ocean. There, looking eastward and seeing no limit to its waves, his countenance changed. And as he gazed over the expanse, he sighed and said to the spirit of the ocean, a vulgar proverb says that he who has heard but a part of the truth thinks no one equal to himself, and such a one am I. Isn't that true? The most dangerous person is a person who's got a little bit of knowledge about something. You know? The most obnoxious, (laughs) I was going to say, well, the most obnoxious Christian is the new convert who has a little bit of truth and a little bit of understanding and thinks they know it all, right? And the more you learn, and many of you have told me this, that the longer you live and the more you learn, what, are you, what is it that you figure out? That you don't know anything, right? That's the wisdom of it. The more we learn, the more we realize there is to learn. I got to the point where if I ever think that I have an original thought, it's only because I haven't read enough. That's it. I'll find it eventually. Now, that doesn't mean it's not my original thought. I came to it on my own. Yay me. But there's nothing new under the sun. And the more we actually know the more we know, the less we know. So having a part of the truth is the most dangerous place because then you can imagine all sorts of illusions about yourself. But now, Spirit of the Ocean says, but now that I... Well, no, this is Spirit of the River still speaking, sorry. But now that I have looked upon your inexhaustibility, alas for me, had I not reached your abode, 
I should have been forever a laughing stock to those of comprehensive enlightenment. So he's feeling that jolt. He's feeling that shock. He's feeling that loss of his own identity. How many times has this happened to us? When you lose a job, when you lose a loved one, when you get too old to play anymore. All these things are losses of our identity, shocks to self. And that grief has to go someplace. That loss has to be accommodated into our life, which means we have to expand the walls of our box. We've always got a box. But if we realize it's a box and we hold lightly enough to it, then we can more graciously expand that box, let that one go, and expand when losses and grief engulf us. He's in grief right now for the loss of who he thought he was as this great river. It's the loss of self. It's the loss of the illusion. It's what Jesus is trying to achieve in us, trying to get us to deconstruct our boxes, to allow our boxes to fall. Richard Rohr has talked about over and over again that there are two paths uh, on this way of Jesus, two ways that can lead us to this truth. And it's great love and great suffering. Why would he say that? Because both of those are the forces in life that are powerful enough to just strip everything else away. Great loss and suffering does that. You've felt that at the times in your life when something hits you so hard that everything you thought you knew just seemed like nothing. Maybe you were angry or resentful for everything that you had come to believe or had been taught because it was inadequate to allow you to deal with this moment. And when you're in great love, the same thing happens, only it feels better. Great suffering, great love will help us. Those are intense enough that come upon us to break down the mental constructs that we're living by, to strip away the surface details. What Jesus is trying to get us to do is to do that voluntarily, to do that consciously and intentionally, so that, as that one man said, I I thought I was a contemplative by intention, but I'm really a a contemplative by catastrophe. Do we have to wait for those intensities of life to strip away what need to be stripped away, or can we do it, begin to do it on our own? The uh, Spirit of the Ocean replies, You cannot speak of ocean to a well frog, the creature of a narrower sphere. You cannot speak of ice to a summer insect, the creature of a season. You cannot speak of Tao to a pedagogue. His scope is too restricted. And what's a pedagogue, you ask? (laughs) It could be a teacher. It can really be anyone who is um, excessively concerned with all these minor details, concerned with all the rules, concerned with proving themselves as, as being an advanced intellect or whatever. You've met the person. You know who it is. You cannot speak of this way. You cannot speak of this ephemeral, experiential truth to someone like that whose scope is too restricted. But now, spirit of the river, that you have emerged from your narrow sphere and have seen the great ocean, you know your own insignificance. And I can speak to you of great principles. We've got to get outside the box in order to see the truth. And it's terrifying and it's painful to know your own insignificance to see yourself with a vulnerability, with a humility that really is a definition of our relationships. 
to lose our life in order to find it, to die to self. These are difficult things to do, and they're terrifying enough that very few of us do it, ever. Jesus said that. The road is narrow, the gate is constricted. Few go by this way. There is no body of water beneath the canopy of heaven which is greater than ocean. This is still the ocean speaking. All streams pour into it without cease, yet it does not overflow. It is constantly being drained off, yet it is never empty. Spring and autumn bring no change. Floods and droughts are equally unknown. And thus, it is immeasurably superior to mere rivers and brooks. Though I would not venture to boast on this account, for I get my shape from the universe, my vital power from the yin and the yang. In the universe, I am but as a small stone or a small tree on a vast mountain. And conscious thus of my own insignificance, what is there of which I can boast? The ocean has had his own jolt. The ocean has had his own painful loss, has gone through the same process, and has found the way to the other side that he's trying now to get across to the river. He continues, the four seas, are they not to the universe, but like puddles in a marsh? The middle kingdom, it is, is it not to the surrounding ocean like a tear seed in a granary? Of all the myriad created things, man is but one. And of all those who inhabit the land, live on the fruit of the earth, and move about in cart and boat, an individual man is but one. Is not he, as compared with all creation, but as the tip of a hair? on a horse's skin? Very well, replied the spirit of the river. Am I then to regard the universe as great and the tip of a hair as small? Not at all, said the spirit of the ocean. Dimensions are limitless. Time is endless. Conditions are not invariable. Terms are not final. God, we need to put that on our fridges. Dimensions are limitless. Time is endless. Conditions are not invariable. Terms are not final. But this is the reality that we can grasp. We can take great leaps in our attitude, great leaps in the experience that is possible to us. He says, thus the wise man looks into space and does not regard the small as too little nor the great as too much, for he knows that there is no limit to dimension. Do you see the non-judgment there? Jesus is always telling us not to judge. Don't judge things as too small. Don't judge things as too great. Experience them as they are. Start to see the larger picture, the connection. Not only focused on outcome, but here and now. This wise man looks back into the past, but does not grieve over what is far off, nor rejoice over what is near, for he knows that time is without end. All time is one. Anything that can't be measured looks the same. There is just one moment. That's all we can know or all we can experience. Everything else is just mental construct. The wise man sees this, and it changes the way that he and she lives. Looks back into the past, does not grieve over what is far off, nor rejoice for what is near, for he knows that time is without end. Investigates the fullness and decay, does not rejoice if he succeeds, nor lament if he fails, for he knows that conditions are not invariable. No focus on the outcome, focus on the process right here and now. What do we do that will take us to an outcome? And 
if we keep working hard, the outcome generally will be favorable to us, but we can't predict it. We don't live there. We live here. He who clearly apprehends the scheme of existence does not rejoice over life, nor repine or grieve at death, for he knows that terms are not final. Finding that kind of balance, finding that kind of baseline is what gives us contentment, a baseline of contentment. You realize that we only see such a small slice of things, a small slice of reality. There's so much more. Why do we make final judgments on just a little bit that we see? What a man knows is not to be compared with what he does not know. The span of his existence is not to be compared with the span of his non-existence. To strive to exhaust the great by means of the small necessarily lands him in confusion, and he does not attain his object. How then should one be able to say that the tip of the hair is the quintessence, quintessence of smallness, or that the universe is the height of greatness? Smallness and greatness suppose, presuppose or assume that there is form. But that which is without form cannot be divided by numbers, and that which is above measurement cannot be measured. The greatness of anything may be a topic of discussion, and the smallness of anything may be mentally imagined. But that which can neither be a topic of discussion nor imagined mentally can be said to be neither great nor small. See, to me, this is exactly the experience of God's love that Jesus is talking about. This degreeless, infinite love that cannot be measured. And if we can't measure it, it always looks the same. It has to, because you can't conceive of it any other way. It's neither great nor small. It just exists and exists as itself. Everywhere, at once, like the wind. The only question we can really ask is, what is the effect of this? on our lives, on life, on relationship. He finishes, Therefore the truly great man, woman, does not injure others and does not credit himself with charity and mercy. Do you see the irony there? Not going to injure everyone, but not going to credit himself or herself as being virtuous about that by being full of grace and mercy. It's just what you do when you are flowing with the Tao, when you are in concert with the natural order of things, when you are moving with God's spirit and will. It's just like falling out of bed in the morning. You just do it. You don't see it as a great virtue or a great burden or a great act at all. It's just what you do. He seeks not gain, but does not despise the servants who do. He struggles not for wealth, but does not lay great value on his modesty. He asks for help from no man, but is not proud of his self-reliance. Neither does he despise the greedy. He acts differently from the vulgar crowd, but does not place high value on being different or eccentric. Nor because he acts with the majority does he despise those that flatter a few. The ranks and rewards of the world are to him no cause for joy. It's punishments and shame, no cause for disgrace. He knows that right and wrong cannot be distinguished, that great and small cannot be defined. And I know that last line probably has given you some problems right now. 
But I want you to consider all these paradoxical sayings that are so alike the way Jesus teaches, yeah? Right? It's breaking down every box that we hold virtuous or every box that we hold shameful. And to put him in perspective, Chuang Tzu is coming right after centuries of Confucianism that has established itself in Chinese culture, which was all about the most minute formulations of virtue. Everything was formulated. This is what you did, and that was virtuous. This is what you did, and it was not. And he is coming. They were like the Pharisees that he was dealing with, the way Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees, who had taken the sense of virtue and put it into a formula, put it into a legal context where it no longer allowed the people to just experience and to become transformed within. It was all about the legalism outside. So the fight that Chuang Tzu has with the Confucianists is the same fight that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Now this idea of right and wrong, I mean, it's not that there isn't right and wrong, of course, we know that. But it's not about the rules or the laws that make something right or wrong. It's about the relationship and it's about the situation that we are in that will dictate whether an action or a choice or what we say is right or wrong. So many times we've said in here, is lying always wrong? And we've all agreed, no, it's not. Because it depends on the situation. It reminds me of Rumi's field, right? Out beyond wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Because when we be get beyond the legalities of things, and we get into the real transformation from inside out where what we do is just relational and connective because we're living that kind of unity. Everything changes. But this kind of stuff spins our head around, whether it's Chuang Tzu or whether it's Jesus. And it makes us uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable. Maybe it makes you angry. Maybe it makes you dismissive that that can't possibly be right. And it's probably confusing. Just as Jesus did in his time, this is happening to the readers in Chuang Tzu's time. But if it's not happening to us right now, then I just want to say that we're not taking Jesus seriously. We have to be able to take him seriously. And the only way we do that is by allowing him to speak and really speak. Because before Jesus can teach us anything, he has to lead us on the path of loss and relinquishment. That is the prerequisite to be able to accept something new. We have to do the unlearning before we can do the learning. We have to purge in order to make room for something infinitely larger. We've got to make the space for that. This is Jesus' way. It's the way of making space for something that isn't going to fit in a box. We've got to let go of the way that we see in order to see something that is so radically different that it stands out of any box that we could possibly construct, no matter how large. If it's infinite degreeless love, it's always going to be larger. And until we get or allow ourselves to have those first jolts, allow those losses to really speak to us and absorb them, Jesus is not going to make sense to us. So if Jesus isn't making sense to us as we read something like the Sermon on the Mount, which makes absolutely no rational sense, let me just let you know that right now, which is why the church has always had such a problem with it and why the church relies on Paul instead of Jesus to build their institution. 
because Paul makes logical sense. Jesus does not. But if we can't make sense of Jesus, then we're going to make sense of Jesus by naming him, by thinking him into one of our boxes. We are going to fit Jesus. We're going to change him. And once he's in a box, Jesus no longer exists as himself. And Jesus no longer has anything of value to teach us, nothing of value to show us. Jesus has no value once we have changed him, named him, and put him in a box. But once you take him back out, let him live again and speak again as himself, then you can't think about him, but he can be re-experienced like the wind. And if we follow Jesus, we're following the wind. You've got to know that. Invisible, mysterious, powerful, effective, but the wind, we don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. We're only following it, same velocity and direction, that natural order, the way, the urha, the Tao. And this is how we're going to approach the Sermon on the Mount, looking at it from this perspective, looking at his beautifully confusing sermon and letting it make its own sense and not try to impose our sense on it. And that will make all the difference. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for this incredible word that you have left us, our sacred scriptures. We want to approach them as children. We want to approach them with beginner's mind and open mind. We want to lay down our biases and preconceptions and be willing to accept something completely different, something that is uncomfortable and confusing, something that just confounds everything we thought we knew about righteousness, good and evil. But that's exactly where we do want to be, Lord. Take us into that uncomfortable place with the knowledge that as your children, as your dependents, you will lead us through to a greater truth that we won't be able to express, but we will be convinced of. So once again, Father, thank you for your action in our lives. Help us to give you permission to act as yourself and not as we imagine you to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.